Hey folks, and welcome to the 12th full episode of SFD. Miracle of Miracles, I'm coming out with shows on time, and they're history shows, no less. In John Coombs' news, freelancing is picking up a bit, and I might be taking on some more substantive, regular work here, which means that the time I devote to the upcoming Vietnam series might have to balance with that other stuff along the lines of remuneration. Those of you supporting me, you're already doing more than your bit, but to everybody else, if you haven't got the cash, that's no problem. But spreading the word gets this show to people who have a cool five bucks to drop on this a month, and that's where I need you. Getting out on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and whatever else you've got. Time's getting tight now, and I want to be able to put as much of my available effort into SFD as I can. I never told you folks how law school shook out, so let me catch you up there. I was in and set to go, but I deferred because of some family stuff. Since I had the time, I retook the LSAT in September, and I won't go into the minutia there, but I did uh, really, really well. So school is definitely a lock for next August, meaning that we've got a good 10 months to put a cap on this thing, at least until I figure out if I can handle the full schedule and a little casting on the side. So Patreon and helping us out on social media is no longer an open-ended commitment. If you were thinking about it, now is definitely, definitely the time. All right. That's enough about me. I'm Jonathan Coombs. We're talking about the revolution in power, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Let's do another quick recap to remind us where we're at. In February 1979, a years-long process of protests and demonstrations culminated in a final standoff at the Doshan Tapa Air Force Base in Tehran. By the end of a two-day period of armed conflict and protesters filling every street and square in the capital, the armed forces finally decided that they'd take no side in the ongoing struggle between the reconciliation government of Shapur Bakhtiar and the revolutionary forces figureheaded by the Ayatollah Khomeini. If you recall, Bakhtiar, of the National Front on the moderate left, accepted the Shah's request to become prime minister late in 1978 and, on the condition of the Shah and the most controversial generals leaving the country, Bakhtiar had been trying since then to restore some sort of order under the Constitution of 1906. 
But the National Front threw Bakhtiar out of the party. The Ayatollah told everyone who would follow him that any government associated with the Shah was dead and that they could not stop until they'd achieved the foundation of an Islamic Republic, an objective to which even the Iranian left was also committed. Once the armed forces abandoned Bakhtiar, he abdicated, and by the end of February, the revolution was in control, with the Ayatollah somewhat vaguely at its head and with Mehdi Bazargan of the Liberation Movement running a provisional government. One last little side note here is that through the whole last episode, and in the few times I mentioned him beforehand, I said Mehdi Barzagan. That is, embarrassingly, entirely incorrect, and it is the result of me accidentally telling Word to spell-check his name that way. His real name is Bazargan, and luckily he hasn't played a super big role yet, like the way he will in this episode. My bad, apologies, and I'll get it right from here on in. Irvon Abrahamian, whose books will be a major source for the last time in this episode, has an interesting reflection on the revolution and its Islamic character that I'd like to share with you here. Quote, Why did the 1977-1979 revolution, whose content was predominantly social, economic, and political, take an ideological form that was undoubtedly religious? And are the factors that gave the revolution its Islamic form temporary or permanent? These questions cannot be answered without taking into account the decisive role played by Khomeini himself. In fact, Khomeini is to the Islamic Revolution what Lenin was to the Bolshevik, Mao to the Chinese, and Castro to the Cuban revolutions. Two factors explain Khomeini's decisive role and widespread popularity. The first was his personality, especially his simple way of life and his refusal to compromise with the quote-unquote satanic tyrant, the Shah. In a country in which most politicians lived in luxury, Khomeini led a life as austere as that of a Sufi mystic, and as devoid of material opulence as that of the common people. In an environment in which political leaders were wheeler-dealers, influence peddlers, and incorrigible nepotists, Khomeini adamantly rejected compromise, even when compromise seemed expedient, insisted that he would execute his own children if they deserved such punishment, and acted like a quote-unquote man of God who sought not worldly power but spiritual authority. Similarly, in a decade notorious for cynical, bland, corrupt, defeatist, and inconsistent politicians, Khomeini appeared to be thoroughly sincere, defiant, dynamic, consistent, and most important of all, incorruptible. In brief, he was a charismatic revolutionary leader at a time when such leaders were in short supply and in great demand, unquote. Khomeini, to Abrahamian's view, had become a man for all Iranians. While there were politically diverse currents in the opposition, the Ayatollah appealed to, and especially before returning to Iran, but even to some extent afterwards, embodied all of them. The revolutionary figure that might apply more than even the ones Abrahamian mentioned is Ho Chi Minh, who also became enduringly popular even among those who didn't share his ideology by simple living and acting on the same principles that he preached. Khomeini won over huge numbers of young members of the middle class and intelligentsia who were fans and adherents even of Ali Shariati by way of that lifestyle. It's telling that Shariati's adherents and supporters of the liberal Ayatollah Shariat Madari that late in 1978 they began calling Khomeini an imam, a title that Shiites reserved for the 11 historical imams and the messianic long-awaited 12th. It expressed their confidence in Khomeini not just as a religious leader, but as someone capable of applying Islamic law to society in such a way as to bring about the great new classless state that Shariati had imagined. The immediate effect, for the moment, of the collapse of Bakhtiar's government and the rise of Bazargan and Khomeini's was a political opening along the lines of that which had taken place in Iran in 1953 and 1963, which we heard about in previous episodes. People founded newspapers, 
The National Front found the room to split into more liberal and more moderate wings, and other new parties, like the Muslim People's Republican Party, which was religious, democratic, focused on the Azer minority in Azerbaijan, and explicitly separatist, just to give you an idea of the diversity of organizations, sprung up and proliferated all over the country. From Axworthy now, quote, Khomeini did not make an immediate grab for power and full control, but set himself and his followers to the task of consolidation and a more indirect extension of their power. Before his return, in their meetings in Paris, which we talked about last episode, he had given liberal nationalists the impression that he favored democratic government with a supervisory role for the clergy, similar to the Constitution of 1906, but with the Shah removed and the position of the clergy only moderately strengthened. Bazargan and the other politicians of the freedom movement, or the liberation movement, received the same impression, and thought that after the initial drama of his return, Khomeini would fade into the background, leaving politics to the secular politicians. Khomeini allowed them to continue thinking that way, and the initial form of government he set up, with Bazargan at the head of it, seemed to confirm the same thing." Unquote. The initial setup after the revolution was a hodgepodge, with different groups and different interests wielding different amounts of power and a chaotic hash after the fall of the old regime. We don't usually hear too much about these intermediate revolutionary periods, variants of which took place at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, this one, and most of the rest, even though they're super interesting. I think part of the reason is that they're complicated and they take more time to study, but I think another is that if the Cuban Revolution meant more than just Castro, and this one meant more than just Khomeini, it gets harder for anyone who wants to tar the whole country with the same brush to do so. And that's just what elites in our country are usually looking to do. The biggest conflict in play there in Iran was that while almost everybody but the hard right wanted some kind of classically liberal republic, and while almost everybody but the hard left wanted Khomeini to play some leadership role in it, almost nobody had a clear idea of Khomeini's own vision for the country. He'd come up with a concept, an elaboration on the old idea of the guardianship of the Islamic jurist, while in exile, and even published a book about it. But otherwise, he had kept his belief under wraps even after his return. In a simplified telling, in a very simplified telling, Shiites believe in the Twelve Imams, the successors of the Prophet, along with Muhammad himself and Fatima, his daughter, as dispensers of holy truth. Guardianship holds that in the absence of a thirteenth Imam and until the return of the Twelfth, the tip-top of the ulama, the clergy, should do what it can to fill in. It's not an idea that originated with Khomeini, not even a stronger version of it, but his new interpretation was surpassingly strict. The clergy wouldn't just advise, but would hold ultimate authority in a state where civil, criminal, and religious law were one. Even with all of that in his back pocket, though, the Ayatollah came to Iran without any firm plans about how to shape the future state, and with what seemed like an intention to take a detached, backseat, hands-off kind of role, even if he managed to implement his ideal government. He'd be there and hold the final say, but other, more secular men would run the day today. And that was the mix on the ground as the Iranian Revolution got underway in earnest in early 1979. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. The imperial guards there gave up without a struggle. Two of Iran's top generals, the commander of the ground forces and the head of the Shah's imperial guards have been killed, roaming the city of Tehran in search of officials those loyal to the Shah, the Khomeini followers also located the military governor of Tehran and his aide. Both of them have been taken into custody. It is said they will be tried. 
If you remember from last time, there were a few different organizations that began to play an outsized role in the resistance towards the end. These were the Council of the Islamic Revolution, the CIR, which was a kind of shadow government of the resistance, which included the moderates and liberals, but was dominated by Khomeini's men. There were the comités, committees, something like the Soviets, lowercase s, during the Russian Revolution, local councils that sprang up to replace the retreating forces of the state. And right at the end there, we saw the rise of the foundation of the Iranian Republican Party, or IRP, which became Khomeini's party, as opposed to the National Front or the Liberation Movement under Bazargan, or, much further left, the MKO and the Fedayeen, which were Islamo-socialist militant groups. Like we said last time, the comités were spread all over the country, and they only proliferated more after February, as state authority collapsed, waiting for Bazargan's new provisional government to start putting it together again. But while Bazargan and the rest of the already established parties focused their efforts on changing and resuscitating the state, Khomeini and his allies in the IRP, especially Ali Khomeini and Hashemi Rafsanjani, were more or less quietly bringing the comités under control, throwing out ideological opponents, and, in effect, setting up a countrywide alternative to the official structures of government. In addition, recognizing that the threat of military takeover would never be fully dealt with as long as his movement had no armed wing, Khomeini and his faction began to set up paramilitary organizations. There was the Mojahideen of the Islamic Revolution, don't worry about them, and the much more important Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the Sepah, and the Hezbollah, different from the Hezbollah who you already know about, who were more or less just political street thugs, drawn from the lower classes in Tehran. With the cooperation of Bazargan, Khomeini began attaching what were basically commissars into military units to begin purging the army of untrustworthy elements. Khomeini also took over the Pahlavi Foundation, much like the Trump Foundation in that it was a fake charity set up to embezzle money for the family, and he began using it to finance his own non-state activities. Khomeini was, in short, shoring up his power base in the country and establishing a set of institutions that had nothing to do with the state apparatus, all of which worked towards strengthening his position, going into what would soon be debates over the new constitution. Also going on at this time was the institution of a new semi-formal system of justice, the comités in many places had replaced not just the police, but the courts, and in those places where they were controlled by the IRP or otherwise by Khomeini's faction, they began to try people in Sharia courts. Now that word has a bad rap in the US, in part because of what's about to happen here, but the whole story there is different. In part because of how Islam was for so long bound up with governance, whether in Shiite Persia or in the Sunni Ottoman Empire, Islamic practice is more legalistic than we might be used to, those of us more familiar with Christianity in the U.S., and the authority to decide what is and isn't kosher vis-a-vis -vis Sharia is diffuse, spread out among different scholars and ayatollahs, all of whom engage in continual debate. So Sharia has meant many different things, more and less strict, more and less liberal, over the last 1300 years. Here and at this time in Iran, though, it was being administered by adherents of a particularly conservative ayatollah, and the court program in general operated under one Sadeg Kalkali, who was even more conservative and even more eager to see revolutionary justice done than Khomeini. Some of the prosecutions of these courts, at least, might have been more defensible, since the courts principally went after the agents of the Shah's regime and businessmen who'd grown wealthy through the Shah's corruption. Some of them were less so, as the courts cracked down on moral crimes like prostitution and liquor sales. From Axworthy, quote, Several leading clerics, including Shariat Madari, also protested, 
Although the militant leftists of the MKO and the Fedayeen urged the courts on to execute even more of the previous regime's officeholders. The trials were quick and rudimentary, often held in secret, with little attempt at a defense, nor any detailed examination of evidence. The accused, most of whom were former members of SVAK, army officers, and police involved in the repression of the previous months, usually had no defense lawyer. Condemned men were often shot dead shortly after being sentenced, unquote. The courts had executed hundreds of people by the end of October, mostly, according to the two of my sources who addressed it, members of the old regime versus moral criminals of some other sort. I don't want to defend these courts. I'm in favor of the rule of law, due process, habeas corpus, and especially the right of the accused to confront their accuser. I know that I'm often in the position on this show of championing the opponents of U.S. policy, but I want to be clear here that I am 100% not championing or defending the revolutionary court system as set up in the wake of the events of February 1979. I do have a want to kind of explain why it is that while moderate politicians were horrified by all this, as you and I should be, it doesn't seem as though the Iranian people were as much. That's because that after 20 years of a totally ineffective legal system, a system designed not to give redress to the people, but to repress them, Sharia law, as applied by what were basically neighborhood priests, had to have had a refreshing tang to it, especially when the guys being grabbed were known by popular claim to be savak or policemen, probably pretty well known and probably with a whole list of grievances against them. It was 100% wrong, even if just from the viewpoint that it was against the existing Iranian constitution. But I can see how it would feel 100% right. The Shah's Prime Minister fled the country. Many of the Shah's inner circle were summarily executed. The part that was difficult, I must say, on the nerves was getting up and look at the morning paper and to see people that you'd known for a long time just lying on a slab with bullet holes throughout their body. One of the first acts of Bazargan's new provisional government was to begin laying the groundwork for a national referendum. Would the country vote as a whole for an Islamic Republic or not? The vote was set for March, and it was over this that Bazargan and Khomeini first started developing friction. Besides the binary choice between monarchy and Islamic Republic, Bazargan wanted to add a third option, that of a democratic Islamic Republic. And given that all they were voting on at this point was a name, with a later body coming up with a new constitution, it seems like a small point. But from Abrahamian, quote, Khomeini refused with the argument, and quoting Khomeini now, what the nation needs is an Islamic Republic, not a democratic republic or a democratic Islamic Republic. Don't use the Western term democratic. Those who call for such a thing don't know anything about Islam. Islam does not need adjectives such as democratic, precisely because Islam is everything. It means everything, unquote and unquote. Khomeini's not playing around there either. In addition to a jurist, he was a bit of a mystic. And one of the reasons he hadn't hammered out any pre-constitutional plans while in exile for the actual shape of the new Islamic Republic is that he had both a faith in that Sharia would in fact encompass everything it needed to when the time came, and that some combination of the Iranian people and the ineffable will of God would create an Islamic Republic in Iran no matter what the words involved or the particular form. So why name it anything different than what it would be? In any case, the referendum went forward with just the two original options on the last day of March and on the first day of April. 
About 90% of the 22 million man and woman electorate turned out to vote, following Khomeini's exhortation that the whole country participate. And when the results came back, upwards of 98% had voted in favor of an Islamic republic. Those sound like mighty big numbers, but according to Abrahamian, quote, there may have been some irregularities in the referendum, but most balanced observers then and since have accepted that whatever the conditions, a referendum at that time and with that question would always have given a massive majority for the same result, unquote. After that referendum, the positions of liberals and conservatives within Iran began to diverge. From Axworthy, quote, while Bazargan's provisional government earnestly set about the practical tasks of getting the country back to work and preparing the way for a new constitution, the IRP, remember Khomeini's party, and Khomeini's followers in other bodies gradually extended their institutional grip and their political influence, inexorably undercutting Bazargan and his colleagues. In addition to the running dispute over the activities of the revolutionary courts, there were many other disagreements. For example, over the lower-intensity intimidation, arrests, and confiscation of property carried out by the comites. In each case, whenever Bazargan regarded the matter as serious enough, he appealed to Khomeini for redress. But such appeals only strengthened Khomeini and his supporters, even if he initially gave decisions that appeared to be a compromise. Each appeal reinforced still further Khomeini's position as the ultimate arbiter in the state." Unquote. This is the beginning of a trend that will run through all of the early stages of the revolution, up to and after the deliberations over the new constitution. That Khomeini seems to understand that he's playing a very serious game, and that the prize is the future of Iran. He plays conservatively, but he plays well. He's not going to try to purge the government of anyone but his supporters. But all the same, he makes sure that his position is strong. Bazargan and the rest of the left don't seem to have anything like the same singularity of mind and purpose, so they give Khomeini these unlooked-for gifts, like asking him to arbitrate, and thereby cementing him further and further into the top spot of whatever state will eventually emerge. In spite of Bazargan and his government's liberal convictions, Khomeini, through the comites and their enforcement arms in the Revolutionary Guards and the Hezbollah, began rolling back even before the constitutional reforms the rights of women in the country. They couldn't touch the vote, but the veil reappeared in the cities along with restrictions on social behavior, despite widespread protests on the part of Iranian women. Likewise, along with stoning and whipping, polygamy and child marriage became possible again. But according to Axworthy, because of the modern and classically liberal outlook of the Iranian people, quote, the general mood of society has been against them, and many of even the religious leadership have come to regard them as an embarrassment, unquote, meaning that all of them rarely come to pass. Not so for executions in general, though, and Iran is still a world leader there, trailing China, in large part because of the drug war that it's fighting along its border with Afghanistan. On the liberal side of things, Bazargan's provisional government was gamely working through the structures of the old state. His supporters and the liberal movement in general were stained both by their participation in what had been the apparatus of the Shah and by the mass emigration of their traditional power base, the middle class. That class had participated in all the protests through 1977 and 78, but the revolutionary courts were scaring them, and Bazargan was left with dwindling support, even as those outside of the middle class saw their leaving as a kind of betrayal of the country. From Axworthy, quote, This effect was strengthened by the fact that Bazargan's government was under constant criticism from the leftist groups like the Tuda, the MKO, and the Fedayeen, who saw it as insufficiently radical, excessively middle class, capitalist and bourgeois in its economic policies, and, dangerously, 
suspiciously moderate in its foreign policy, where Bazargan and his foreign minister favored discussion and reconciliation with the U.S. and the West in general." Unquote. Yesterday's demonstration was the nearest thing to an anti-Khomeini rally yet. The imposition of Islamic law here has started with an order to women to cover their heads in government offices. Many are furious. Only a minority in Tehran already follow the instruction. But the issue has provided an escape valve for many of the men here who for days have been spoiling for trouble. Led by a few Islamic zealots, several hundred men eventually attacked the protesters. Several of the women who stood their ground with considerable courage were stabbed as they chanted slogans for equal rights. Most of these men can be relied upon to have a gun at home, and if they can't persuade the women and other sectors who oppose extremist Islamic beliefs, then the danger is that they will bring their weapons out onto the street and that there will be bloodshed again. Moments later, guns actually did appear. The order was eventually restored by a mullah who expressed no sympathy for the women's position. Ayatollah Khomeini is determined to see an Islamic state at all costs. Resistance to it is already growing. With no impartial policing, the split in the revolution is already open and threatens to become wider and more dangerous. John Snow, ITN. So that was the disposition of forces going into and coming out of the referendum in late March, and the one that existed when the first draft of a new constitution came up for review. Bazargan directed his foreign minister to write up a new document, a process during which he consulted with members of the right and left, including Khomeini-aligned clergy and members of the liberal ulama like Shariat Madari. The liberals, and even many or most of the moderates among Khomeini's supporters, were in favor of basing the draft on the old constitution of 1906, with some changes, obviously, to cut out the monarchy, replacing it with a strong presidency like that laid out in the constitution of the French Fifth Republic, the one that's still in force today. As far as the explicitly Islamic element of the first draft, it was limited to the provision that had existed but never been used in the old constitution, that a council of clergy would look at new legislation to make sure that it was in line with the tenets of Shiism. The concept of the guardian jurist did not appear at all. When Khomeini looked over the draft document, he made only two small changes, preventing women from being judges or appointed to the presidency. Otherwise, he said the draft was quote-unquote correct and indicated that he'd be happy to approve it with another public referendum. Here, the Iranian left continued its long tradition of shooting itself right in the foot, and of giving Khomeini gifts he would not have dreamed of. Both Bazargan and another powerful member of the moderate liberals, Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, again, who we're going to hear more about later, objected to a process that would ratify a new constitution with so little opportunity for debate and revision. And instead, they pressed for the election of a constituent assembly, or an assembly of experts, that could give the whole thing a good going over. Even Khomeini's right-hand man, Hashemi Rafsanjani warned Bazargan that any assembly would be dominated by conservative religious members. But the liberals pushed ahead and set the date for an election in August. And while the government ran that contest, Khomeini, the IRP, and the Comites chose and vetted the candidates where they held power, heavily slanting the field towards the Islamic right. There was also a much lower turnout, something like half the number that had originally voted in the March-April referendum and the eventual 73-man body contained, as a result, 55 clergymen and another 11 laymen closely associated with Khomeini, leaving only seven seats for the liberals and moderates. 
While there does seem to have been some indication of intimidation of liberal voters in the streets by the IRP and member organizations like the Hezbollah, I think that the lower turnout doesn't necessarily have to do with election rigging, but rather with a populace that thought it had already done what needed doing, that it had already participated in March and was trying to get back to work. Meanwhile, while that vote was easy to turn out for, a moment of national consensus, a joy, and easy to understand, yes, no, this was an election along more boring, normal, and complicated lines. Axworthy posits that Khomeini was originally willing to play the long game in terms of making Iran into a fully Islamic republic, but that this constituent assembly, along with his burgeoning control of the country through the IRP and the Comites, gave the Ayatollah the opportunity to seize the upper hand way ahead of schedule. From Axworthy, as the assembly convened, quote, there could be no serious opposition. As the deliberations went on, the concept of the jurist's guardianship gained ground. Although the leftist parties, Shariat Madari and many moderate and liberal politicians continued to voice their disapproval, there was little sign of strong popular opposition to the concept of the guardianship. Given his previous caution, it seems likely that Khomeini was surprised by the ease with which he was able to achieve his principal aim. The moderate politicians, the heirs of Mossadegh and the constitutionalists of 1906, the people he had been accustomed to regarding as the main political opponents to himself, his aims, and the clerical class as a whole, were conceding the central powers of the state to him almost without a fight. And this was happening primarily because of the continuing enormous popular swell of support for him personally, and for the idea of an Islamic government in general." Unquote. The liberals at the time just didn't understand, as liberals often failed to understand, that although they were sitting atop a popular movement, and at many points had articulated the feelings of that movement in the press and in poetry and wherever else, they'd failed to grasp that same movement's disinterest in the minutiae of liberal democratic politics and the technical issues of setting up a new state. They had also, less understandably and less forgivably, failed to see that Khomeini wasn't just the most visible personality, but the very embodiment of the movement. That when push came to shove, Khomeini versus detailed constitutional issues, Khomeini and just Khomeini and simply Khomeini would win out. It's a problem liberals with too much faith in the system the world over experience, and one that we on the far left are already anticipating in the event that the so far disastrous first two years of a Trump presidency should turn the Congress over to the Democrats. There's a time for reaching for greater input and consensus, a time for building bridges and reaching across the aisle. And there's a time for making use of the power you have when you have it. Bazargan and the Iranian left had had that power in the June of 1979, and by August they'd given it away to the Ayatollah, who knew exactly what to do with it. The document that began to emerge in the autumn preserved both the French modeled constitutional and democratic elements, alongside the new concept of not just a jurist guardian, but one who held sovereignty alongside and intention with the elected representatives of the people. From Axworthy, Article 5, which touched on the guardianship, quote, declared that in the absence of the 12th imam, the guardianship and the leadership of the people devolved to the just and pious jurist who is acquainted with the circumstances of his age, courageous, resourceful, and possessed of administrative ability. In later articles, he was given sweeping powers that gave effect to the principle laid down in what we just read, Article 5. He was to appoint the heads of each of the armed services, the Joint Chief of Staff, and the head of the Revolutionary Guards. He had the responsibility for declaring war or peace and ordering mobilization. He was also to appoint the head of the National TV and Radio Organization. Before presidential elections, he had to approve the candidates before they could run for office, 
and he could dismiss a president declared incompetent by the Majlis or the Supreme Court, unquote. Not to draw too straight a line here, because Khomeini is not really comparable to Trump, but I think you could draw a line to the populist post-revolution and the American populist during the presidency now. In that engaged liberals would have been watching this process intently, and probably with trepidation turning to horror as these articles came out in the press. But to the great mass of the country, with a thoroughgoing faith in the Ayatollah, this was probably all esoteric stuff that they were willing to ignore until the result came down, even if they too would have disagreed had somebody sat them down and walked them through it. They'd been through a revolution, and they wanted to get on with things, not hang on every new development. It's like what you see with that unshakable rock-solid 38 or 39% of the population that Trump enjoys. If somebody walked them through the embarrassments, the shamefulness, the out-and-out corruption of the Trump administration so far, they'd be upset about it. But as it is, they're getting on with their lives, and the news they're receiving comes filtered through what are now effectively state mouthpieces on Fox News, ones that conveniently ignored the wrongdoing at the top. What I'm saying is that the laxity of the Iranian people in guarding against what happened to the revolution should be understandable, especially to those Trump-supporting American conservatives who are now cheering and backing the president in his brinkmanship with Iran. Tomorrow will be a critical day for the new government of Iran. Its plans for an Islamic republic will be put to the people in a referendum. But already the new men are finding Iran is a hard country to hold together. Minority groups are struggling to gain autonomy, and today the Ayatollah Khomeini admitted there had been violence in three widely spaced provinces. The most serious challenge to Tehran's rule is coming from the Turkmen, a tribe who live in the north on both sides of the border with the Soviet Union. The powers ceded to the Guardian jurist expanded as the autumn ticked on, allowing him wide appointment authority within the judiciary and the ability to pick six of the twelve clerics on the Guardian Council, a body which would review and either approve or veto legislation from the Majlis, like the body originally described in the 1906 Constitution. The other six members of that council were to be appointed by the Majlis from the Supreme Judiciary Council, whose members were, in turn, appointed by the Guardian meaning that Khomeini and whoever followed him would have half or more of the executive power in Iran, half or more of the judicial, and while he wouldn't be able to directly propose legislation or vote on it, he would have veto power over it. Bazargan and a few of the other liberals saw the constituent assembly going awry and tried to appeal to Khomeini to call the whole thing off and try again, but Khomeini at the time was getting what he wanted and made no move to interfere with deliberations. The core of the constitution, though, remained democratic. Men and women 16 years and older could vote, electing the president, the majlis, provisional and local councils, and a few other positions. The president was limited to two four-year terms and appointed the cabinet, a wide variety of other positions, and was charged with the running of the government. The majlis, for its part, held all of the normal investigatory and legislative powers of parliament, likewise elected for four-year terms. All the checks and balances and divisions of power that exist in the American or the French or much any other classical constitution were there, but they existed under and alongside the jurists' guardianship, a tension that was never clearly resolved in the Constitutional Convention in 1979. America feared its embassy could become a target. It reduced its staff from over 2,000 to under 100. Then the Shah asked if he could settle in America. I advise strongly against an early admission of the Shah. I'm warned that if we did, it was such a sensitive matter that there could be considerable violence 
demonstrations, agitation against the United States. So as the debate over the Constitution was ongoing and beginning to wind down to the close of deliberations on the 15th of November, there were some other things going on in the background. Bazargan, though it was not good for his popularity, was working to bring about some sort of return to normal relations with the United States, seeing that it was not to Iran's advantage to lose either its largest oil customer or its largest supplier of arms. Without the establishment of a new constitution and then a new government, however, there were limits to what he could do to appease the Americans. A communications officer at the embassy in Tehran, a man named Bill Belk, said of the atmosphere in the capital at the time that, quote, the government had absolutely no control over what was happening. Armed bands of revolutionary zealots were roaming the streets and taking the law into their own hands. Because the worst thing you could possibly be in Iran was a policeman. Most of the people who had been policemen were in hiding. The streets were literally turned over to these armed comités. Khomeini had appointed a provisional government, but they didn't have any real authority. The traditional institutions through which a government administers and functions were the very same institutions that were being attacked by the revolutionaries and the vigilante groups. So dealing with the provisional government was like trying to deal with the shadow. You could see it, but talking to it was pointless. In reality, there was no substance there." Unquote. The situation at the time was certainly chaotic, and Americans in Tehran were used to seeing the best parts of the Shah's regime while being protected from its poverty and repression, and they probably found the situation on the ground pretty shocking and disheartening in a law and order sense. The Americans, moreover, wanted the return of some comité confiscated property, assurances about American investments and assets in the country, and access to the oil supply. The Iranians desperately wanted widespread international recognition of their new government, assurances against coups and such, the delivery of weapons or the return of payments that the Shah had already made for them, and, most importantly of all for many people in Iran, the resolution of the question of the Shah's whereabouts. Mohammad Reza, after he left the country on the 16th of January 1979, fled to Egypt, where then-President Anwar Sadat put him up. He traveled to Morocco under King Hassan II after Egypt, and enjoyed the fruits of the generous gifts he'd been making to other royals in the region. After Morocco, it was the Bahamas and then Cuernavaca outside of Mexico City, under the protection of López Portillo, a period during which his leukemia began to visibly worsen. He came down with gallstones, and while he was offered treatment in Switzerland, he demanded entry and treatment in the United States. Abbas Milani, covering this part of the Shah's life, states that equipment was available there in Mexico to at least attempt treatment of his illness, but the ex-monarch refused, who knows why, to tell the Mexicans that what he had was cancer. Both Milani and Axworthy write that at this point, as Carter was deciding whether or not to give the Shah one last reward, the State Department warned the White House that admitting Mohammad Reza into the country might well result in action against the embassy in Tehran. But on the 22nd of October, Carter took the critical step and admitted the Shah for treatment in the United States. Also going on at the time, on the 1st of November 1979, Bazargan flew to Algiers to meet with the U.S. National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, to try to restore normal relations between the two countries and to resume both arms and oil shipments to the satisfaction of both. At the same time and since October, the IRP and other Khomeini partisans had been using the Shah's entrance into the U.S. to allege that the U.S. was once again trying to meddle with internal Iranian affairs, just as they were freeing themselves from monarchy. While Khomeini himself knew of and had approved of Bazargan's trip to speak with Brzezinski, his supporters and the partisans of the IRP who were deploying inflammatory rhetoric in the street 
saw it as a sign of collaboration between the liberals and the United States, further inflaming tensions in Iran. Protests, mainly made up of radical anti-American students, began showing up outside of the embassy. From someone there at the time, quote, We students couldn't prove it at the time, of course, but we were sure that foreign elements were actively involved in attempts to weaken and undermine the young republic. Like weeds, thousands of tiny political groups had sprouted in less than six months, each one attempting to convince the people to adopt its views. Every day their newspapers circulated the wildest rumors. It was as if they were determined to create an atmosphere of endless uncertainty. Ethnic and tribal uprisings, which they rushed to support, broke out in all the regions of the country. And through it all, the provisional government dithered and wavered, with the result that security had almost collapsed." Any post-revolutionary environment is chaotic, and Iran was a country particularly historically disposed to see foreign hands at work in that chaos. Moreover, especially to young activists like the one we just heard from, while the provisional government toiled away on crafting a new constitution, putting a real reconstruction of the state off until its ratification, it must have seemed obvious that the organizations with the most success were the ones that allowed the people to take power into their own hands, like the Comité. So it was that on the 4th of November, 1979, a group of pro-Khomeini students, afraid of a coup like that that had followed in 1953, decided without Khomeini's knowledge to mount an attack on the embassy. They stormed the gates, and while the Marines on guard threatened with their rifles, there were hundreds of students and they soon swarmed past, filling the building and taking all but a few of the resident staff hostage. There were several immediate results of the crisis. From Actworthy, quote, There are some indications that Khomeini himself, when first told of the embassy occupation, saw the incident as an unimportant act of unruliness, and was inclined to see the students leave again quickly. This could have happened. The following day, there was a similar intrusion at the British embassy, which ended when Khomeini's son Ahmad called it off. But the occupation was very much in line with the trend of Khomeini's agitation against the U.S. Perhaps after having been reassured that the students involved were solidly loyal to him personally, perhaps only when it became clear that the U.S. and the West would not threaten military action. He decided the occupation should be supported and should continue, at least in the short term, The U.S. proceeded to handle the crisis surprisingly gently, freezing Iranian accounts and holding on to Iranian payments for undelivered weapons. This, by the way, is the money that we gave back to Iran under the nuclear deal. And Carter sent a negotiating team to Tehran to see if they could work something out. The students in the embassy, despite an effort to shred or otherwise destroy documents as the invasion was ongoing, found and pieced together a great many that indicated that the U.S. had been in touch with members of the military and with members of every Iranian political party for decades, that the CIA had been in active contact and collaboration with Savak, and a great many other unsavory things that confirmed some of the Iranian people's suspicions and did nothing to improve U.S.-Iranian relations. Bazargan, on returning to Iran from his meeting with Brzezinski, met with accusations that he was trying to collaborate with outside powers to undermine the revolution at home, another blow to his rapidly eroding popularity. Recognizing the hostage crisis as having the potential to destroy relations with the U.S. for decades, Bazargan demanded that the students release the captive embassy staff. With his power base having diminished greatly since his appointment at the beginning of the year, and with even moderates and liberals unwilling to go against the Ayatollah, or, in light of revelations from the embassy actually in favor of the students, Bazargan found himself without support, and resigned from the provisional government two days afterwards, on the 6th of November. The Shah, for his part, left the U.S. under pressure from the Carter administration, 
which, after the hostage-taking, was finally listening to the State Department about where the Shah should and should not be. Mohammad Reza fled to Panama, whose populist dictator accepted the ex-monarch only because of U.S. pressure, and whose people had little love for the Shah. It looks as though his medical treatment was actively impeded there, while the Panamanian regime charged the Shah tens of thousands of dollars for his accommodations and services. So, the hostage crisis. The number one thing in the news in the U.S. for 444 days, but more like an inflammatory background item there in Iran, where people soon had bigger and badder things to worry about. Not a great thing, the hostage crisis. I mean, on one side, we were maybe kind of asking for it by legitimately running terrible stuff out of the embassy for decades, and for not weighing any of the obvious effects that accepting the Shah into the country would have had on the ground in Tehran and for having just earlier that year asked the ambassador to arrange contacts with the military to foment a coup. I don't know if anybody could have seen the extent and the duration of the damage the hostage crisis would directly and indirectly cause. And if you can't forgive it, you can understand the political reasoning that would lead Khomeini to take advantage of a situation he hadn't wanted, but realized he could exploit. All the same, though, an embassy is an embassy, and that diplomats are inviolate is maybe the oldest tenet of international law, dating back thousands of years. If you want them out, you throw them out. But what was done was done, and the hostage crisis would govern U.S.-Iranian relations until the present day. My <clears throat> presumption was that I would not let him come into the United States. I argued that he should be allowed because we treated him as an ally in good times, and I felt it was our responsibility to treat him as a former ally, but a friend in bad times. The president said, well, let me ask you one question. If we do this, and as some fear, our employees in our embassy in Iran are taken hostage, then what will your advice be? And the, and the room fell dead. And he said, I thought so. So all of this, the hostage crisis, Bazargan's trip to Algiers and resignation, the revelations in the documents from the embassy, and until December, the Shah's presence in the U.S. was in the background as the Assembly of Experts, the Constituent Assembly, finished writing the new constitution in mid-November, and the country moved towards the referendum on the same issue in the first days of December. In contrast to the run-up to the elections of that assembly of experts, the hostage crisis and Khomeini's response to it had fired up the country with revolutionary fervor all over again, and excitement and enthusiasm were high. On the left, though, the split between Bazargan-aligned moderates and the radical groups like the Fedayeen and the MKO over the hostage crisis, along with Bazargan's resignation, made any united attack on the referendum impossible, and some of the opposed parties called for a no vote, while others advocated a boycott. Shariat Madari, which we remember from the last episode, was a moderate to liberal cleric who led the opposition in Iran until Khomeini returned, had been watching the formation of the new constitution with considerable distress. For all that he was an Ayatollah himself, Shariat Madari agreed with the late Ali Shariati that while Sharia might have a place in shaping the state and its laws, the clergy had no place in government, and that their participation in politics would only lead to the kind of corruption of Islam that Shiism was an explicit rebellion against. He campaigned against the constitution leading up to the referendum and mounted legal theological attacks on the concept of the jurist's guardianship itself. 
the Muslim People's Republic Party, the one that I mentioned as an example way back when, or MPRP, don't remember anything but the initials, became Shariat Madari's de facto party, even though he was not a member. Campaigning against the referendum and staging protests both in Qom, where he was living, and in Iranian Azerbaijan, where the party was strongest. The IRP, remember that's Khomeini's party, mounted counter-protests and demonstrations outside of Shariat Madari's home. From Axworthy, quote, For a time, Shariat Madari appeared to be growing into a serious rival to Khomeini, at least in the important province of Azerbaijan, whose capital, Tabriz, had long prided itself as the cornerstone of the Constitutional Revolution of 1906. The rivalry grew more heated, at one point, Khomeini apologized for the excesses of his supporters in Qom and went to Shariat Madari in person to try to resolve the conflict, unquote. Even after that peace offering, and despite that Shariat Madari wasn't really pressing people to turn out, tensions in Tabriz kept rising, with further demonstrations breaking out and the MPRP eventually taking over TV and radio stations in the city. The party pressed for the referendum to be called off, the constitution to be rewritten, newly encroaching censorship lifted, and the formation of a liberal coalition to oppose the influence of the IRP. The Council of the Islamic Revolution, the CIR, sent in the Revolutionary Guards to retake media stations, and it looked like the city was on the point of cascading into out-and-out violence. But from Axworthy again, quote, Shariat Madari himself was unwilling to push further confrontation into serious violence, and he backed down. The student hostage-takers and other pro-Khomeini groups were alleging that Shariat Madari was in alliance with former Savak agents in the United States. Some MPRP supporters were arrested, tried by revolutionary courts, and executed for rioting. The IRP demanded that the MPRP dissolve itself. Shariat Madari replied bitterly that there was no need, since the government would gradually dissolve all political parties, labeling them anti-Islamic, Zionist, or American, so that there was no need to worry about it. Eventually, Recognizing defeat, the MPRP complied." Unquote. Shariat Madari was maybe the last best hope for staving off the passage of the new constitution, but he was also the last best hope for a civil war sparking up in the aftermath of the revolution. And while we can maybe mourn that he and what he stood for didn't end up in charge of the new state in Iran, we can also take small comfort in that had he tried to push his followers further, rather than restraining them, we might be looking at a much messier and less stable Iran than the one we eventually got. The referendum on the Constitution went forward on the 2nd and 3rd of December, with most of the liberal and opposition parties sitting it out, which led to a 99.5% yes vote, with a 71.6% turnout, meaning that even if the MPRP and the National Front and all of Bazargan's people and every other liberal in the country had gotten together to vote no, they still would not have gotten close to shutting it down. For all that the protests and demonstrations of 77 and 78 had culminated in February with the victory of the revolutionaries, 1979 had been a long, hard year for Iran, and especially its liberal factions. Bazargan and Shariat Madari between them had run the show for two years before Khomeini's return to Iran, and with Bazargan at the head of the new government, they had had an excellent position and good prospects for forming the new state that would take shape in their country. But they vastly overestimated their popular support, and vastly underestimated Khomeini's, and they frittered away month after month trying to run the provisional government as if this weren't a totally exceptional time, while Khomeini outmaneuvered them at every turn, converting his popularity into actual institutions and political power. More than anything, the liberals and moderates in Iran couldn't get their act together or their politics behind one platform, 
and as a result gave gift after gift to Khomeini and the conservatives, accepting and acting as if Khomeini was the supreme power in the country, long before his position was enshrined in any document or institution, undermining Bazargan through infighting, and above all calling for a constitutional convention when they already had the constitution they wanted and the opportunity to approve it, thus giving away the game to Khomeini. We can't know the Ayatollah's mind anymore, but it seems to me that he came back to Tehran with his mystical faith that the revolution would succeed and that an Islamic Republic would follow it, knowing at the same time that what remained in the end would be the result of a fight with the liberals and moderates, that is to say, a compromise. Instead, they gave the game away, and it's hard to fault him for taking it when he did. 1979 was also the year that, to Americans, the U.S.-Iranian relationship was born. From Axworthy, quote, The discussions between the hostages and the students who had taken them were in a sense the front line in the confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. On this front line, there was a near total mutual failure of understanding. The American hostages were naturally indignant and angry at their detention and the treatment and could see no circumstances in which it might be understandable. The Iranian students believed what they had been told by Khomeini and the IRP leadership, that the U.S. embassy staff were mainly spies, plotting a coup, as in 1953, to reverse the success of the revolution. They knew the history of foreign and U.S. interference in Iran. The embassy staff were largely ignorant of it. Unquote. Khomeini and conservative religious forces didn't steal the revolution away or impose it on the Iranian people so much as take it when it was offered. The revolutionary courts could be and were brutal, but they were agents of retribution against the old regime and moral offenders, not in this early period the enforcers of a particular political ideology. Iranian liberals, like liberals in general, couldn't unite to impose their own vision, and they were hampered all the while by the U.S.'s failure first to embrace the new government after it threw out the Shah, and then by its acceptance of the monarch and the evidence, in the documents of the embassy, of its attempts to undermine the normal function of Iranian internal affairs. The battle over the nature of the revolution and the politics of the country wasn't done yet, but it would soon be overtaken and subsumed by more violent events both in and outside of Iran. Iranians continue to vote today on the new Islamic constitution, a document that legitimizes the power of the religious leaders and invests in one of them supreme powers. There's little question who that one supreme power will be, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Voting ends at 6 p.m. It will be several days before the actual votes are counted, but the results are hardly in doubt. At most polling places, 97% of the people are dropping green ballots into the box. Green means yes. Tashi Tafrashi, a 29-year-old student, said he read the Islamic Constitution very carefully. He doesn't like a great deal of it, but he believes it's a good start. He said it is his opportunity to support the Imam, the Ayatollah Khomeini, for his leadership in overthrowing the Shah. But I'm just vote for Imam, because he said yes, and I'm, I should follow him. That's my only uh, thing. Yes, you trust. Just, I trust him, yes. It seems that most of the response is like Mr. Tafreshi's. The people are voting yes for the Constitution, not because of what it contains, one-man rule, but because they trust the Ayatollah Khomeini. He has told them to vote yes, and that's what they are doing. Fred Francis, NBC News, Tehran. With the new Constitution in place, 1979 rolled on into 1980, and elections for the first president of the new Islamic Republic of Iran went forward in January. 
The eventual winner was Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, popular because of his close ties to Khomeini and acceptable to the fractious leftward factions because of a reputation as a liberal. He'd served as finance and foreign minister under Bazargan, and for all that the constitutional question hadn't worked out so hot, the beginning of Bani Sadr's period of office looked like another chance for the moderates and liberals, those who had hoped and believed that Khomeini and his clerics would pull back from their hitherto forward role in politics and leave the running of the country to the secular politicians. From Axworthy, quote, Bani Sadr frequently referred to himself as Iran's first freely elected president, and this reflected genuine enthusiasm about his election in the country from many sectors of opinion. He wanted it as a priority to rebuild the institutions of the state, disorientated by months of purges and intimidation, and to bring the new institutions aligned with the IRP under state control, including the student hostage-takers, who had become an institution in their own right. He and his supporters were further encouraged when Khomeini gave him chairmanship of the CIR, the Council of the Islamic Revolution, and delegated to him his powers as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, including the Revolutionary Guard. He was also given control of the broadcasting services. Khomeini's son Ahmad acted as a go-between, helping Bani Sadr to keep Khomeini's trust, and Khomeini gave a New Year's message on 20th March, that's according to the Islamic calendar, that echoed many of Bani Sadr's ideas, including the aim of bringing the revolutionary courts back within the structure of the judicial system, the rebuilding of the armed forces, and a general call for a return to normality and order in state and society. Unquote. There is no clear indication that any presidential candidate would seek an end to the stalemate at the American embassy. In Iran, it's not smart politics to talk about freeing the hostages. John Cochran, NBC News, Tehran. This is the 84th day that Americans have been held hostage by Iranians at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It was also vote counting day throughout the country for the presidential election held Friday. Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, the finance minister, apparently will be Iran's first president. He got at least 80% of the vote so far compiled over seven rivals. Bani Sadr is close to the Ayatollah Khomeini, but relatively moderate. He said today he would quickly settle what he called the minor affair at the American embassy. Khomeini himself triangulated during this period, continuing to contrast with the image we have of him in the West as a kind of brutal revolutionary mastermind. Here he turned the presidency over to a liberal and even delegated to Bani Sadr some of the most important elements of executive authority that the Constitution invested in the Guardian Jurist. It's hard to tell with any certainty whether he's playing the brilliant puppeteer here, putting or allowing Bani Sadr to come into the top spot while balancing him with his own men in the judiciary, or whether he was in his own way trying to make sure that different factions each held power, thus staving off rebellious impulses like those of the late MPRP in Tabriz that we were just talking about. Besides his domestic programs, Bani Sadr, like Bazargan before him, saw the resolution of outstanding problems with the U.S. as his first and most important issue in the outside world. Through third parties of the U.N., Bani Sadr quietly opened up talks with U.S. diplomats, and it looks as though they were making progress towards some sort of deal when Khomeini announced on the 23rd of February that the new parliament, not yet elected, would have to rule on any hostage negotiation torpedoing the Bani Sadr conversations with the U.S. Part of the resistance of the students still occupying the embassy to releasing the hostages was the suspicion that, even if the U.S. had sent the Shah to Panama, he was still under American protection and couldn't be brought home to face Iranian justice. So Bani Sadr just filed extradition paperwork with the Panamanian government as sort of a plan B, and when the Shah caught wind, he fled back to Egypt, thus stymieing another Bani Sadr idea.
The Carter administration, feeling that negotiation had failed and that attempting to secure further talks would be fruitless, sent a message to the Iranian government on 25 March 1980, saying that unless the hostages were transferred from the students to government custody, as a step necessary for their eventual release, by the end of the month, the U.S. government would take, quote-unquote, additional non-belligerent measures, probably more sanctions on top of the assets they'd already frozen in November, and the ban on importing Iranian oil that they'd already imposed. The Carter administration, moreover, was considering a belligerent measure, one that it had begun developing as far back as late November. We sent word to the Ayatollah that if he uh, injured a hostage, that we would stop all commerce between Iran and the outside world by blockading their seaports and so forth. We didn't go into detail. And if he killed any hostages, that I would respond with military action. From Axworthy, quote, On the evening of 24 April 1980, eight U.S. Navy Sea Stallion helicopters took off from the USS Nimitz as it cruised into the Arabian Sea off the southern coast of Iranian Baluchistan. They flew northwards and westwards over the Iranian coast at low level to avoid radar detection. Six C-130 Hercules transports flew the same route, but originating further south from an airbase on the island of Masira, off the coast of Oman. They were flying toward a point in the desert between Yazd and the small town of Tabas, which was to be the base in Iran for an attempt by U.S. Special Forces to rescue the hostages. The operation was codenamed Eagle Claw, unquote. Eagle Claw was Carter's response more to the extremely damaging effect that the ongoing hostage crisis was having on his presidency than the operation's intrinsic feasibility or the wisdom of its undertaking. If we'd wanted those hostages back, regardless of how it would look for the Carter White House, we would have just given them the Shah. And as far as justice goes, maybe we should have. The helicopters in question were to set up camp in the desert, along with the C-130s, and then fly low into Tehran and somehow extract 54 hostages from the custody of hundreds of university students, a situation that seems like it could only have resulted in an ugly bloodbath. In any case, dust and desert sand left only five of the eight helicopters viable for the mission, less than the necessary six, so the mission commander asked for and received permission to abort then and there. In the process of maneuvering the helicopters around to refuel from the C-130s, one crashed into one of the larger planes, setting it alight and killing its flight crew, along with three of the crewmen on the helicopter. An Iranian fuel truck happened to drive up to them in the night, because of the worst possible luck, and the special forces blew up both him and his vehicle to keep their operation secret. In an effort after that to get out as quickly as possible, the crews left behind documents detailing the entire plan, which Iranian authorities found, along with the body of the dead truck driver, soon after. In addition to that its results were eight dead Americans, one dead Iranian, and the loss of expensive equipment and the return of no hostages. From Axworthy, quote, The failure of Operation Eagle Claw was a disaster in a series of ways. In the immediate aftermath, most of the hostages were moved out of Tehran to dispersed locations, making any repeat attempt at a rescue effectively impossible. In Iranian politics, it appeared to confirm the assertion of the radicals that the revolution was at risk from U.S. interference and that the Americans were incorrigibly disposed to interfere in Iran's internal affairs, using covert methods and military force if necessary. The corollary was that it weakened yet further the position of the liberals and moderates and intensified fears about foreign agents at work within the country. It was used to legitimate new rounds of purges and arrests. 
Over the following month, there were a series of scares about invasion and coups d'etat from within the armed forces, unquote. It was a dynamic that would play out over and over again between the U.S. and Iran, up to the present day. It seemed, and still seems, as though whenever moderates and liberals are ascendant in Tehran, the U.S. steps in to cut out the legs from under them and shore up their opponents. We can see it going on right now. Hassan Rouhani, the moderate president of Iran today, set up the nuclear deal with President Obama, a move as dangerous for him with the conservative elements in Iran as it was for Obama with the conservatives in this country even if those same members of the Republican Party would be hard-pressed to find Iran on a map. But the deal got done, and it was on the strength of the sanctions relief that it entailed, despite the end of the nuclear program, along with the popularity of rapprochement with the United States, especially under Obama, that carried Rouhani to his second election last May. It was an opportune moment to begin working on other points of contention between our two countries, one in which we could heal old wounds, open up borders, and spark cultural interchange and trade, all while shoring up the most liberal elements in Iran and giving them ammo against their opponents. Instead of that, Donald Trump is unilaterally trying to destroy the nuclear deal, and unsubtly threatening military action against Iran, a set of moves that strengthen exactly one kind of politics in Iran, and it's not the kind that we want to work with. In the U.S., coming back to 1980 and this show, if the hostage crisis had been eroding Carter's popularity, after Eagle Claw, it imploded and paved the way for Ronald Reagan's landslide later in the year. It likewise, according to Axworthy, quote, intensified the bitter anger felt by Americans towards the Islamic Republic and, among the less reflective, towards Iran and Iranians in general, unquote. Late yesterday, I canceled a carefully planned operation which was underway in Iran to position our rescue team for a later withdrawal of American hostages who've been held captive there since November 4th. Equipment failure in the rescue helicopters made it necessary to end the mission. As our team was withdrawing after my order to do so, two of our American aircraft collided on the ground following a refueling operation in a remote desert location in Iran. This particular thing hasn't fit in anywhere else especially well yet, but Bonnie Sauter got on board with a Khomeini-driven decision to close down some Iranian universities in April 1980. The IRP had originally been strong among students, but by this point, other more radical leftist groups, like the MKO and the Fedayeen, had taken over campuses. The Ayatollah called them bastions of communists, and Bani Sadr may have seen it as a way to strike out at the far left that was attacking him for being too moderate in the same way that it had attacked Bazargan. But Bani Sadr's own moderate supporters were pretty unimpressed with what seemed like a heavy-handed and illiberal move. Elections for the new Majlis, or parliament, under the new constitution went forward in two parts, first in March and then in May, with the Bani Sadr-Khomeini move on the universities sandwiched in between, along with the failed Operation Eagle Claw. It was a bad environment for Iranian liberalism, and the resulting body was majority IRP, with only 40 liberals, 130 members of the Iranian Republican Party, and the remaining 71 members of the body independents. Hashemi Rafsanjani, former head of the Revolutionary Guards and one of Khomeini's top supporters, became the speaker, a position from which he would build up an extensive power base within the newly forming government. In the wake of the elections, Bani Sadr tried to assert his authority under the presidency by choosing the new parliament's prime minister, 
but the IRP rejected his choice, giving him instead Muhammad Ali Rajai. And the impasse over Rajai's appointment, and afterwards, when the Ayatollah had stepped in to force Bani Sadr to accept him, the impasses over almost everyone Rajai nominated to the cabinet ate up most of a year and did much, according to Axworthy, to both discredit Bani Sadr's presidency and to set an unfortunate precedent for delay and obstructionism in Iranian politics. While all of that was still ongoing, during the summer, a revolutionary court turned up evidence of a planned coup attempt, linking high-ranking military officials and former Prime Minister Bakhtiar to a plot to bomb Khomeini's house from the sky and then reinstate Bakhtiar. Which seems like a terrible plan, but whatever. The plot was backed up by Iraqi cash from Saddam Hussein and was, according to Axworthy, 100% a thing that people were actually planning. In the aftermath of the plan's exposure, a good number of military personnel went to prison and probably to fatal trial, and the Speaker of Parliament, Hashemi Rafsanjani, blamed the National Front, since Bakhtiar had originally been one of theirs. Hezbollahis under the control of the IRP mounted attacks on their offices, the government closed their newspaper, and the National Front, the creation originally of Mohammed Mossadegh in the 1950s, for the last time ceased to be a political entity in Iran. While intra-revolutionary conflict had been relatively low-key through 1979, except for the disturbances in Tabriz before the December referendum, even by the halfway point, 1980 was marked by infighting, with Bani Sadr taking on the legislature and Hezbollahis facing off with MKO and Fedayeen fighters, all of it taking place against a backdrop of suspicion and intrigue, heightened by Eagle Claw and the Bakhtiar Iraqi plot. And on top of all of that, which was already more than enough, I imagine, for a fledgling regime. There were the burgeoning tensions with Iraq. It was seen around the world as a, an America no longer capable of dealing with her real problems. It humbled the administration in dealing with problems at home. It had a profound, prevailing, devastating, uh, paralyzing impact upon our government. Tensions between the secular Ba'athist regime in Iraq and Tehran had actually been running high before the revolution, and some of Khomeini's rhetoric about exporting the revolution to all Shiites, a great number of whom live in Sunni-ruled but Shiite-majority Iraq, didn't do anything to alleviate strained tensions between the two countries. There had actually been stuff going on since the 1960s, a dispute over who owned which side or both sides of the Shat al-Arab, the waterway which divided the two countries and poured into the Persian Gulf. And likewise, there had been problems in Kurdistan, with both governments funding the other's Kurdish rebels. I don't know how many people would have at the time, or would still, chalk up the growing enmity to quote-unquote ancient tensions between, basically, the Iranian Shah and Shahs and the Ottoman Sultans, but Axworthy spends a lot of time debunking it, and knowing the way that the policy elites in DC think, it might be an idea that's been seriously advanced. But it's a dumb idea, and the problems developing at the time all had immediate and contemporary causes and had nothing to do with Sunni-Shiite sectarianism or some ancient grudge between the two countries. The other thing that Axworthy takes to task here, and I agree with him, is that observers and later writers laid the fault for what happened at the feet of the Iranians because of Khomeini's talk about a grand pan-Shiite revolution. But all of that was propaganda, and not serious in either a planning or an action sense. Not only that, but most Shiites in other countries were as nationalist as they were religious, as far as the question went. And what's more, the small number of Shiites in Iraq that did sympathize with the message never would have had even a tiny fraction of the strength they would have needed to overthrow Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath. 
Incidents on both sides ramped up the pressure from the spring into the summer of 1980. Saddam's security forces murdered a cleric and an old ally of Khomeini's, still residing in Najaf, and Khomeini responded by now explicitly exhorting Iraqi Shiites to rise up. Saddam got involved in the plot on Khomeini's life over that summer, and in July 1980, he made a public statement declaring that, quote, we do not want war, this is for Khomeini to decide, unquote, which Axworthy calls, quote, the sort of declaration that achieves the opposite effect to the intention indicated by the words used, unquote. Between the 6th and the 13th of September, 1980, Saddam sent troops into areas ceded by Iran to Iraq previously, and skirmishes broke out. While on the 7th of that month, an Iranian F-14 shot down an Iraqi Soviet helicopter. The F-14 was one of the best or the best fighters in the air at the time, and while American observers later wrote, since they didn't see as much service on the Iranian side as you might expect, for reasons that we'll later get to, that the Iranians weren't competent to maintain or operate these machines that the Shah had bought at such great cost from the United States. But what Axworthy makes very clear is that that was not in fact the case, and that the Iranian Air Force was elite in that country's military, and was good even by American standards with both the F-14 and the F-4 Phantom. This will all come up in the next episode. In any case, as Axworthy notes, quote, the broad military balance between Iran and Iraq at the outbreak of war favored the Iraqi land forces. The Iraqis had an army of 200,000 men in 12 divisions, well equipped with tanks, armored personnel carriers, and artillery. The Iranian army had been reduced in strength to below 160,000, from 285,000 before 1979. The disorder created by the purges and other effects of revolution had not yet been rectified, and a portion of the Iranian tanks and other equipment were inoperable due to breakdowns, and the prevailing disorganization. The effects of the revolution were probably less severe in the Air Force. The Iranians had 450 aircraft to the Iraqis' 340." Unquote. Despite a long period of relative peace, and even without previous threats and skirmishes, the Iraqis should not have been able to take the Iranians by surprise. But shakeups within the Iranian military, the disorganization in the government, and the disposition of Iranian forces, which had been deployed under the Shah to the border in the north facing the Soviet Union, left Iran less ready than it should otherwise have been. According to Axworthy, quote, Saddam saw an opportunity for some quick gains on the Shat al-Arab and probably the oil fields of Khuzestan, while Iran was weakened by revolutionary turmoil and the debilitating effects of the military purges. It is likely, too, that Shapur Bakhtiar was instrumental in convincing him that Iran would quickly fold after an invasion. The propaganda of the Iranian regime against the rule of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq made him want to slap down the mullahs responsible, for whom he had contempt. Saddam also saw an opportunity to make himself look like a powerful national leader in the wider Arab world, and a protector to the Arabs of Iranian Khuzestan, to appeal to the pan-Arabist sentiment that had been made part of the original ideology of the Ba'ath Party, from which he sprang. He was a political adventurer and opportunist who fancied himself as a warlord, those were, in a nutshell, the aims of the Iraqi invasion and the prime causes of the Iran-Iraq War." Unquote. So it was that on the 20th of September, 1980, Saddam called for full mobilization, moving troops to the border and activating his reserves. On the 22nd, he launched a massive armored thrust from the center all the way to the very south of their shared border, with one armored corps heading towards Mehran near the center and two in Khuzestan further south, close to the Persian Gulf. The invasion was met on the Iranian side by border guards, a handful of understrength infantry units, and a lone, depleted armored division in Awaz, the capital of Khuzestan. The Tehran government immediately began moving its forces towards the border, 
but poor planning resulted in many, especially armored breakdowns during the transit. Dangerous in particular because most of the equipment was western, and would be difficult to repair without the parts shipments that the Carter administration had frozen in November of the previous year. The Iran-Iraq war had begun, and the bloodletting would not end for another eight years. And that's the end of this episode of SFD. I thought I'd get Iran done by mid-October, but you guys know the score on timing by now. What is the case, though, is that reading and notes are done right through to the end, and by hook or by crook, next episode, that is the next long one, is going to be the last one, and it's not going to come out any later than three weeks from now, even if it takes us a hair over 90 minutes. Safe for Democracy is researched, outlined, timelined, throughlined, written, read, recorded, edited, cut right together, uploaded, and published by me, this guy, John. And it's heard and kept alive by all of you. A few of you have gotten in touch on Facebook and Twitter and the site, some to demand that I shut up about anything that's not history, one to let me know that my piece on ancient aliens was garbage, and just a couple to tell me that we're doing okay here. But I want to hear from all of you. SFD is a conversation, and it could be a much more active one. Reach out, boys and girls, and make yourselves heard. That's it for now, but next time it's the Iran-Iraq war, our ignoble part in it, and the politics that led Iran right up to today and our current president's current insane initiative to torpedo the nuclear deal. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. <laughs>